Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Lisa C., winner of the Golden Spike Award from the Chinese Historical Society of Southern California, the Chinese American Museum's History Makers Award, and the National Woman of the Year by the Organization of Chinese American Women. She is the author of several best-selling novels, most recently, The Island of Sea Women, published by Scribner, a division of Simon and Schuster Books. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. Um, Lisa, your new novel, The Island of Sea Women, opens in 2008 on a beach in South Korea. What is happening on that beach? There's an old woman. She's a sea diver. They're called sea women. The word in uh, Korean is henyo. And it, she lives on this island, Jeju. Uh, she's sorting seaweed and algae that's washed in from, from the night before. And she's just kind of looking around her. You know, there these women are pretty unique in the world on this island. It's a matrifocal society, a society focused on women. It's not a matriarchy, but focused on women, where the women have been free divers for hundreds of years. And so they take deep breaths. They dive down about 60 feet. They harvest seafood. And so they've been the breadwinners in their families, and their husbands are the ones who take care of the children, do the cooking, take care of the house, take care of the elders. And so Young Suk, she's on the beach, she's pretty much retired. She still does some diving, but like many of these women who are either retired or borderline retired, she's sorting algae, and she's just aware of all the people around her. So there are tourists who come to this island. There are honeymooners who come to this island. There are scientists who come to research these women. And she's sort of... Um, having these imaginary conversations with each group of how she's going to turn them away. And then uh, an American family approaches her, and they have a, f- a manila envelope filled with photos. And they, she pull, the woman pulls out one and says, Do you know this person? Do you know Meja? That was my grandmother. Do you know her? And Young Suk is like, No, I really don't know her. But, of course, she really did. Yeah, thank you. And... Lisa, what is the significance of the year um, that the novel starts, 2008? Why 2008? So on this island, uh, there was a lot of history, obviously. Uh, For about a 1,000 years, it was its own independent kingdom. Then it was under uh, Korean kings. There was a period when... The Manchus and the Mongols who'd come through China had control of the island. And then in 1910, it became a Japanese colony after World War II. Uh, you, you know, you see the division of Korea into North and South and the Red Scare. And the Red Scare is something that's happening all around the world, our fear of the domino effect and all of that. And all of that leads to what's called the 4-3 incident. It happens on April 3rd, 1948 when uh, over the next eight years, although they always just count that first date, um, a vast majority of the population was massacred. So it's between 30 and 80,000 people. After this eight years, in addition to the trauma that people have experienced of loss and violence and death, the Korean government did not allow people to talk about it. It was completely censored for 50 years. 
And if you mentioned anything, if you wrote something, if you were just gossiping in your kitchen and someone walked by and heard you, you could be arrested, you could be sent to jail, you could be killed, and so could your family. So in 2008, this was when they had the opening of a big peace memorial and a memorial to the victims of 4-3. So it's, it's just this really critical moment. And, it, the, you know, um, when you see Jung Suk on the beach, it's just literally days from the opening of this memorial. Thank you. So the April 3rd incident, um, your description of such is what I'm going to come back to when I think about this novel 10 years from now. Um, your portrayal of such, I'm not going to talk about the particulars of the scene in the book, but it's a very violent scene, uh, gruesome scene. It is very well written, so much so that I was not able to sleep the night after I read it. Uh, I'm wondering... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's Either quite I'm right. sorry or I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I think both are appropriate responses. Um, I'm wondering how writing this scene was for you. Well, of course, it's terrible. I mean, and, and I know as the writer what's coming, right? And, you know, I've had other books where you know, I know something bad is coming, and I have to kind of start preparing myself about three months out. Because, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and think, woo-woo, I get to kill, all, kill off, fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's that's just not how I feel about it. I have to be there with those characters. And I I think about the, the scene that you mentioned in particular, that, you know, we, li- we live in... We're very lucky to live where and when we do. And yes, we may say, oh, you know, everybody's against each other in the two parts of our country. And, you know, if you watch CNN, they're all yelling at each other all the time. And yet we're not experiencing war right on our land. We're not experiencing this kind of tumult. And so um, to actually try to put yourself in that and to have readers experience that, to actually not be so removed that it's like, oh, that's just something way over there. It's really that that at least I want readers to feel like I'm right there with these people as they're going through this. And that's how I think we understand about violence and war and, and then the other side of it, you know, peace and forgiveness. Thank you, Lisa. Um, Did you find that there was a different approach to dealing with the grief surrounding such incidents culturally, I mean, between the subjects of your novel as citizens of Korea and how you may have portrayed citizens of America dealing with similar grief in a similar incident? Well, on this island, they practice shamanism. So actually, South Korea is considered to be the most Confucian of all of the countries in Asia. But on this island, they practice shamanism. And there are certain aspects of shamanism that I think were very helpful to people. So the shaman is often um, like the conduit between the living and the dead. And so maybe the dead have grudges, or maybe they're angry, or maybe they're sad, or maybe they're lonely, or maybe they want to express love. And on this side of, of the world, you know, yes, 
uh, I mean, in, in that culture, the living, you know, you too might have a grudge or you might be angry or you might want to express love or that you miss this person. And so to actually have this kind of conduit where you can have a conversation with the dead, um, I think can be quite healing and at least gives you a way to sort of express your emotion uh, to that person and you know whether they're actually speaking to you or not that the shaman is is I think often telling you what you need to you know if we if we take the most practical sense and say maybe there isn't anything truly spiritual in what they do that they're trying to tell you what you need to know or what you need to hear so you can move forward so you can heal Thank you very much, Lisa. Readers, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Lisa C. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Lisa C., author of The Island of Sea Women, published by Scribner, a division of Simon & Schuster. Lisa, I want to ask you about Korea. A lot of books coming out about Korea, at least the large, splashy, award-winning books that have come out over the past few years, focus on North Korea, but you've chosen to focus on South Korea. Can you tell us a bit about South Korea and why you look to that area for inspiration? Well, it actually was even less about South Korea than it was about this particular island, mm. Jeju, and the culture that is there that's a woman's culture. Mm. And... These are the women who taught the ama, the divers in Japan, to dive for pearls. Um, but apart from the ama, they're really the only ones in the world who do this kind of work. They say that in about 15 years, this culture is going to disappear from the earth. UNESCO has given them the designation of an intangible world heritage tradition. And I... I don't know. I just I, that was what I was most drawn to. It was it was less about North and South Korea than it was. This is where the diving women live. This is where they work. This is where that culture is. Thank you, Lisa. Um, we've talked about Korea and the April third incident, but let's talk about the actual sea women in your novel first. Um, remind us again, who are these sea women in general? And second. Uh, Tell us more about Young Suk and Mija, the protagonists of your novel. So the divers, um, like I said, they take these deep breaths. They stay underwater two to three minutes. I, I, when I've been out on tour, I've been timing people, you know, in the audience, see how long they can hold their breath. Most, mm-hmm. most are at about 40, 45 seconds. And I just think, you know, for people who are listening right now, they could just time themselves and just imagine, let's say, your... 40 feet underwater or 20 feet underwater and now you've run out of breath and what that feels like 
I remember with my sons, uh, we were practicing with them, and they had said, oh, I expected my lungs to burn. But actually what happens is your heart starts to beat really hard in your chest. And then that sense of there's the surface, but you might not get to it in time. So it used to be that these women would retire at age 55 if they lived that long. It's very dangerous work. You can get your hair tangled in rocks. You can get something, a tool stuck. You could, it's volcanic rock, so you could, you know, slice open your skin. It's very sharp. Uh, sharks, of course, um, getting tangled in seaweed, getting tangled in fishing lines. I mean, there's just so many different ways to die. So they would retire at age 55 if they lived that long. Today, there are under 3,000 of these women left. The youngest one is 55. And so when I was there, I interviewed women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, most of whom were still diving. Hmm. And what really inspired me about them is, of course, they have this incredible physical courage and stamina and endurance. They are, um, science has proved, proven that they have the greatest ability of any human group on earth to withstand cold water. But they also have those same kind of attributes in their personality, you know, persistence, endurance, bravery, because to do this is so dangerous. And yet, even though they're facing up against life and death every single day, or maybe because of that, they have these incredible senses of humor. I mean, they are so funny. And they're loud because their ears have been pretty damaged by being under the water, you know, for most of their lives. So they're shouting at each other, and they boast a lot, like, I was the best tenyo. No, I was the best tenyo. Well, I was so good. I could, I, I was so good under the sea, I could cook a meal under the sea. I mean, that they boast and brag like that. And then you know, have these conversations of, you know, who should eat more, men or women? And then they argue back and forth about the pros and cons of why women should eat more than men. So I just loved all of that about them. So as far as Jung Suk and Meja, well, Jung Suk is the daughter of the chief of the diving collective for that part of her village. And because of that, she's she kind of has a stamp on her, you know, for the future. She will, everyone anticipates, will grow up to be the new diving chief when her once her mother retires. So it's a kind of a positive future lays ahead of her. And then for Meja, she is the daughter and now orphan of a Japanese collaborator. And so as a child, she has lived a life of privilege. She lived in a big house. Uh, They had a huge garden with a pond where the servants were growing fish. They had fruit trees. They had vegetable garden. So the idea that she might go hungry, it just never, you know, was not in her worldview. Her father had a car, so that meant she got to see the island. Um, She is modeled on someone that I interviewed whose father was a collaborator, And she talked about the first time she saw electricity. And she thought that somehow, miraculously, she'd been transported to Japan because only the Japanese would be so clever to be able to have electricity. And she really was the the first person there, or the earliest person there, that I interviewed who had seen electricity. Hmm. She saw it as such a young girl. But, of course, now, with her father dead and as an orphan, 
she also has this kind of stamp on her about her future. You know, can she be trusted as the daughter of a collaborator? It's like the sins of the father, right, being passed down. And this is a theme that I've come back to in other books, this idea of fate and destiny, but also where does free will, free choice come in? Thank you, Lisa. Um, in much of your novel, specifically the relationship between these two women, Young Sook and, and Meja, deals with nuance, uh, slight phrases, words that were spoken seemingly in passing conversations between the two friends that could carry multiple interpretations. And the interpretations of such affect your characters deeply, both in the present and uh, the pre- and post-World War II era, and then in 2008 when we revisit Young Sook as an older woman. Can you speak to us about the importance of nuance and of words that can be interpreted differently in your novel, but also in life? Well, we know about that just from email, right? I mean, you can sometimes get an email where you just are so hurt or you get angry so quickly that's because it doesn't have the nuance. It doesn't have people's gestures. You don't hear their tone of voice. You don't see if they're smiling or frowning. And so we, we, I mean, we've all experienced that, whether it's in an email or a text or even just somebody in passing saying something that they may not have necessarily meant to be hurtful, but it is. You know, it really is, and it just cuts into you, and you're, you're brooding about it, or at least I am, at 3 in the morning. So I, I don't know that this is something unique to them, but I do think it's, you know, just part of our, uh, one of the actually sad parts of being human is that we don't always understand each other, and something that can even be an offhand remark, that the person who's saying it may not realize how much you've they've actually cut to the bone. Thank you, Lisa. And finally, I want to ask you about um, about childbirth in your novel. One thing that I found very refreshing in your novel uh, is that most novels I read, the emphasis is put on the desire that families have for their children to be born male, mm-hmm. a desire that carries an immense amount of pressure and worry for pregnant mothers oftentimes. But in your novel and in this particular culture, it is the birth of a female that is to be desired and celebrated, though this too seems a bit shaded by cultural implications from time to time. Uh, Can you talk about this a little bit? Sure. So actually, everybody needed to have a son. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is true. You need a son who's going to take care of you once you get to the afterworld. He's the person who will make offerings. He's the person who will provide clothes and, you know, everything that you're going to need in the afterlife can only come from a son. So they are still really, really important. But unlike most cultures, at least in Asia, on, on this island and in the Henyo culture, the birth of a daughter is something to really be celebrated because now you have another person who's going to be a breadwinner, who's going to bring food into the house, who's going to bring money into the house. And so it's not, you know... It, Chinese culture, the you know how I grew up, it was always like you're you, you have a daughter, you're raising a daughter for her husband's family down the line. That she doesn't really even belong in your family. She doesn't make it into the 
you know, the ancestor temple of your own, of her birth family. It's only as her hus future husband's wife that she really exists. So to have this whole very, di I mean, it's just so completely different from other cultures in Asia uh, where the birth of a girl is celebrated. And these women, the divers, when I was there, they all talked to me about um, how they loved to be in the sea when they were pregnant, and you know, when really pregnant, because it gave them this buoyancy that they didn't have on land, and that their greatest desire was to have their babies in the field, which meant, you know, in the ocean while they were diving, that this was the best thing you could aspire to as a, as a pregnant woman, and that if you couldn't do that, that you would come out onto the boat, you know, maybe for the last hour, have your baby on the boat, and then a couple of days be back in the sea. Thank you very much, Lisa. Um, I've been speaking with Lisa C., author most recently of The Island of Sea Women, published by Scribner, a division of Simon & Schuster. Lisa, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Lisa C. for joining me. Signed copies of The Island of Sea Women can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books or online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.